Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Roots Show. We heard every Friday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and also on Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I want to wish everyone a happy and safe uh, Memorial Day weekend. And you will hear this show. If you're in Colorado, particularly Denver, you also will hear tomorrow, Saturday, which will be today if you're listening in Denver. But anyway, it's uh, KUHS Denver Radio and Television, and that was founded by Henry Archuleta. And the phone number here is 424-675-8315 because we're going to have a very stimulating show here. We're going to do a little baseball, then we're going to get into politics. But I'm going to start it off because this week was the birthday of the legendary Fats Waller. And I'm going to play right now Headlines in the News by Fats Waller. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Sit thee down, woman, sit thee down. I would have a chat with thou. Headlines, tell all your business in ink. Midlines, the people dig you and think. Stop time, you better stop it or be. Headlines in the news. You're mine, to always have and to hold. Meantime, you are becoming much too bold. High time that you desist or you'll be Headlines in the news I have tried to treat you fair Still you won't play me for a doggone swear You ought to be ashamed of yourself You better quit running with that crowd Or be prepared to wear a shroud Headlines from all the papers will shout Bylines at last your sin found you out. Ha ha, this time you won't be able to read. No, no. Headlines in the Quit running with that crowd. Yeah. Or be prepared to wear a shroud. Headlines from all the papers will shout. Bylines. 
had let your sins find you out This time you won't be able to read Headlines in the news You better call up Undertaker Because there's going to be one needed shortly And I don't mean maybe All right, the late, great Fats Waller, and that was headlines in the news. This is the, his birthday was earlier this week. I hope you enjoyed that song on the Root and Root Show. If you're unfamiliar with this show, that we get, first of all, to the root of issues, be it anything like tonight, baseball or politics, such as what happened in Baltimore and other things, as well as we get, we play Roots music such as what we just played with Fats Waller, the jazz there. We play gospel here, blues, sometimes country and western, soul, hip-hop, classical. But, we, you know, it's all about learning about the experience, especially the African-American experience in this country. But it's all about history and just learning about that. And I hope you have enjoyed the shows. We're getting a lot of followers here, and if you want to call in, the number is 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315 as I wait for our guest here on the Root and Root Show who I just talked to a few minutes ago, and he'll be calling in here shortly. But we always ask folks out there, if you have a topic, because a lot of the topics I do on the show are based on what listeners request, what they ask me to do. So if you want to have a topic for the show, you can just Leave a message here at the blogtalkradio.com site under Root and Root Show, or you can go to my Facebook site, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D, or you can hit me up on Twitter, and it's um, hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S. And we have right now, our guest is on the line here, and I'm happy to have on this program, I have followed... My first guest has worked for a number of years, and I think I first discovered him through his card collection, the Infinite Baseball Card Set, and he puts out a publication from time to time. But I learned through the book that we're going to be talking about that he was very instrumental as far as some of the creation of the uh, Camden Yards in Baltimore, the ballpark there. And who I'm talking about is Gary... Sir Sir Edkowski, I hope I got your name right, Gary. And he yep, is the author right. of a new book. Thank you. Thank you so much. He's the author of a new book, The League of Outsider Baseball, an illustrated history of baseball's forgotten heroes. And it's, a, and it's on Touchstone Press, which is a distributed by Simon & Schuster. And, Gary, I'm just happy to have you on here. I've been wanting to actually talk to you for years since I first saw the Infinite Baseball card set. So, it's just great that you're on here this evening. Oh, well, thanks, thanks for having me on. And I have to say that, I mean, your your artwork is just amazing, how you render the pictures of all, you know, the ball players and all. But what made you decide to put everything together and to create this book? And what got you into just writing, you know, drawing pictures of old ball players and finding these fascinating stories? Because you have some stories in here of, well-known ball players that we'll get to shortly that I thought I would know about that I just didn't know about this stuff. So what what got you down this path to actually become this you know baseball historian more or less? Well, it goes back to when 
before I can remember, I was brought up to be a baseball fan. My my father loved baseball as his father loved baseball. My my mom's father loved baseball. My grandma, you know, my whole family just loved the sport. And uh, I grew up in New Jersey in the late 70s, early 80s, and the Mets had really, I was a Mets fan, and uh, the, the team just was really lousy back then. So after a while, there really wasn't that much good things to talk about when you're talking about your favorite team. So my father and my grandfather would start telling me about the players that they saw when they were growing up. My my father, my grandfather was a Brooklyn Dodger man going all the way back to the 20s, you know. So he'd tell me about guys like Dazzy Vance and Babe Herman and all these these old players. And my dad grew up in the 50s, so he'd tell me about Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Warren Spahn and you know the guys that he saw. So I, I just really started to be interested in baseball history because, and then uh, you know after you start studying the famous characters, you start stumbling on like the real eccentric guys that played the game and, and that's where i guess i got that love of um, interesting characters from and so throughout my life my father and i would trade back and forth like you know he would he would read a book on somebody and tell me about this odd character and i would read something and, and we would just swap back and forth for years so um you know flash forward to 2009 right before the world series right. started my father passed away and uh, I was living out in California in Hollywood, and I didn't have any friends that liked baseball. And with my father passing away, I didn't have anybody to talk about, you know, baseball history with. So, you know, I'm an artist and an illustrator and graphic designer. So I, I just just one night I was lonely and I missed my father, and I drew a little baseball card um, about a you know a player by the name of Leon Day, and I wrote a little story about him and put it on a blog. And then a couple of days later, I did another one, then another one, then another one. I just did it for myself. And uh, all of a sudden, it, people started stumbling on it, and it just kind of took off from there. And Leon Day, is, we've talked about him on, the show, on this show before because we, uh, I do a lot of Negro history uh, shows on this program. That's one of the reasons I want to have you on here. But tell folks who don't know who Leon Day is was who he was because he was a hall of fame ball player but tell, tell folks a little yeah. more about him well, leon day was uh, he was from baltimore uh, actually i think he was from virginia but he grew up in baltimore and uh in the late 1930s 1937 i think he joined a team called the newark eagles which was a negro league team and they played in the negro national league and he, he was a pitcher and he was, a, he was a little guy i think he was about five seven or five eight and he didn't have a wind-up. He just threw directly from the shoulder, just threw from the stretch. So he was kind of unique back then. But he had a, a really good curveball, and he was just a really hard thrower. And he was the ace of the Newark Eagles for, up until World War II. But as good as he was as a pitcher, he, he was, uh, in my book, I call him the, 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 uh, the most complete ball player because when he, when he wasn't pitching, he was usually playing in the outfield or if they needed uh, somebody to take a place in the infield. The guy could just play any position, and he was always at the top of the team in, in uh, batting as well, <laughs> as well as also being the team's, the team's ace. And uh, he, he was very fast and a very smart base runner. So, you know, you get that guy on base and you knew you were going to get a run. And then uh, according to his teammates that I've met, he also had the best singing voice in the Negro National League. See, that's something I didn't know, you know, and that's really something to know there. But, you know, he, either him, everything I've read about Leon, reading about the Negro Leagues, either him or Martin DiHalgo from Cuba mm -hmm. were the best players ever in the Negro Leagues. Yeah. 
Yeah, Mar- Martin Digo, he was uh, the Cuban ball player. You know, he's he's most famous if you read books about him. They always say that he he, he would play a game at every position. You know, each inning he would switch a right. position. He, he only did that a few times, but that's how versatile this guy was. When he was learning how to play the game in Cuba, I, I think he started out as an outfielder. So he learned how to play the outfield really well. But that wasn't good enough for him. So he wanted to learn uh, – he went to third base. He became the best third baseman he could be. Then he switched to shortstop, and he did that with all the positions. He just never stopped learning and never stopped trying to improve himself. And he was just as good a pitcher as he was an outfielder and a hitter. And, it, you know, it, it, it's really – people today, they say, uh, you know, you can't tell how good these guys were because they didn't keep statistics for the Negro Leagues. And all. It's not necessarily true. There's certain ways that you can gauge how good of a player – these guys were because you know back before world war ii there was a huge a huge scene of semi-pro baseball where you had guys that were former major league players or college ball players or minor league players white guys and they would play on these semi-pro teams and then they would play against the negro league teams so you could tell a, a guy that pitched in the major leagues and and martin digo gets like you know he goes four for four off of him you could tell what he more or less would have been like in the oh, major yeah. leagues and there's a lot of guys that that played against him in the 30s and the 30s and 40s that you know went on to have major league careers like Johnny Mize that was that was one of Martin Digo's biggest boosters he he's a Hall of Fame uh, first baseman the first baseman for St. Louis and the Giants oh yeah yeah you know yeah, but he, he just he called him the he called Martin Digo the you know the best ball player he had ever seen in his life and you know coming from a Hall of Famer that played on all those great Cardinals teams and Giants teams you know that that's a big compliment. You know, and I remember uh, so many guys, uh, Buck O'Neill, and all these guys used to always talk about Martin, but then they would talk about Leon. They would always talk about him, and they would always say that he was actually a way better pitcher than Satchel Paige. Yeah, I could go on on for hours about Leon, because when I I went to our college in Baltimore, and Leon was still around, and I got introduced to him. And so I used to near where I was living at the time. And so he would invite me over his house all the time. And I would sit in his little baseball room and we'd just talk about baseball. But the first oh, man. I'd say like the first three or four times I met him and talked to him, I would try to like ask him about his career. And he wouldn't say anything about it. He would talk about all the other players he played with or against, you know, and he just had these great stories and he was very complimentary around everybody else. But he wouldn't tell me anything about his career. So this is back in the late eighties, early nineties. So you know, I wound up going to um, the archives of the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper, and then I was trying to, you know, put the pieces of his career together. And I'm reading the stuff about this guy, the contemporary articles that were written in the 30s and 40s, and they're saying that this guy was just as good as Southwell Page, if not better. And I'm like, geez, you know, he doesn't even, he won't even mention that. So, you know, next time I went to see him, I'm like, all right, you know, we got to talk about you now. <laughs> but that's the type of guy he was. He just wouldn't. Oh yeah, he just didn't like talking about himself, you know. So it's and, kind of you know, and I realize, yeah, and I've read about Leon over the years. And by the way, listeners, you can call in at four two four six seven five eight three one five. I'm talking with uh, Gary Sir Ed Kalski, author of the book The League of Outsider Baseball and Illustrated History of Baseball's Forgotten Heroes. And you know, I, it hit me actually today that no one, and maybe you should be the one to do it. No one's written a book about Leon. I was doing some searches, and from what I've seen, maybe there is a book out there. I haven't found it yet. There's one book that was written, you know, and I'm sorry I can't remember the, the author's name, 
uh, from the tip of my tongue. He's, he's a guy that writes really good books on the Negro Leagues. He's one of the early researchers. But he wrote a book about three of the guys that played for the Newark Eagles. It was um, Ray Dandridge, uh, Leon Day. Oh, yeah, 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 I have seen that book. Yes, I yeah, take something that, but, the but, devil and day or something like that. It's, right, it's hard to find. It's an old book, but that that's really good, and that's the first book that really goes into to detail about his career. But then, then it needs to be one just about him, and you know, just all the facts that came out since that book, because there's so yeah, much I, information I about him. But let, let's talk about some of you know what got me in, in your book is like. Talk about the story about Willie Mays, because I was surprised first of all to realize that you, I was I know you got some odd players in there. We're going to talk about them, but you had guys like Mays and Clemente, Jackie Robinson. But talk about that story about Willie Mays. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that that was a neat story to find out. I found it in a couple of his biographies, and it's kind of glossed over. They don't really talk about it that much, but I, I thought it was really interesting. When he got signed by the New York Giants in 1950, um, uh, uh, Willie had played two years of Negro League ball down in Birmingham. So he, you know, he had experience under his belt. But when the Giants were trying to put him in their minor league system just to, you know, get him acclimated to playing organized baseball, they're going down their list of teams, and they, they didn't want to stick. He was only, I think he was only 19 maybe at the time. I don't even think he was even 20 years old. He was still young, and they they wanted to they didn't want to stick him right in AAA. They figured they'll give him a little bit of seasoning. So they're going down their list of teams that they own, and the next team down was in Sioux City, and they had just had a, a very violent um, race riot against against Native Americans there. So they figured that's probably not a good place to put you know the team's first black ball player. So they're going down the list, and then the next couple of teams are are in the deep south, and that's not a good idea either. So they finally hit on the Trenton Giants, which was at the bottom rung of their, you know, their organization. And they played in New Jersey, and they played against teams in Maryland and Pennsylvania and Delaware. So they figured that's, that would be a good place to start. Right. But it was way below the, the Willie's ability at that time. So reluctantly, Willie Mays goes and joins the Trenton Giants, and they're, they're playing on the road in um, Hagerstown, Maryland. And at that time, Hagerstown, Maryland was still segregated. So Willie meets, shows up, and the game's just getting over, and he meets his teammates, who are all white. And uh, they all get on the bus to go to the team hotel. Well, they tell Willie, you know, town's segregated. You can't stay with the rest of the team. You have to go to a, a black hotel. So he gets dropped off by himself at this hotel. And, uh, you know, he goes up to his second-floor room and unpacks his suitcase, and he's kind of sitting there, and it gets dark. And meanwhile, the... The Trenton Giants players, they, they have a meeting in their hotel, and they're, they're upset. You know, there's a black guy on the team, and, you know, they're, they're, this is, you know, something new for them. And, and you know, they're, they have all these feelings, mixed-up feelings and anger. They, a bunch of the guys wind up going into the black neighborhood to Willie's hotel, and they sneak up the fire escape and rap on this window. The Willie, you know, it's dark out, and somebody's a bunch of people on his fire escape knocking on his window. So he kind of reluctantly opens the window, and it's I think it's like five of his teammates, five or six of his teammates. They came to his hotel because they felt bad for him that he was part of the team, and they were making him stay in another place. And they spent the night in his hotel room with them as solidarity to say, Amazing. "You're part of this. Yeah, you're part of this team now. You know, there's no reason for you to be segregated. And if you're staying here, we're staying here too." I thought that was, you know, this is spring of 1950. You know, it's only three years after Jackie Robinson, and it's 
you know, it's just it's one of those stories that you just don't hear. It's it's a I don't know. To me, it just was a and very an, positive and story. An important story. Yeah. yeah, very important story. Never brought up, rarely brought up at all in the narrative yeah. of Willie Mays. And I'm just glad that you put it in your book. And let's talk about some of the other. Well, you know, the thing. One of the things that struck me is a humorous. A lot of things in your book, but uh, when you start getting into the various Babe Ruths, mm-hmm. and you talk about the Mexico's Babe Ruths. Um, the Jewish Babe Ruth. Let's talk, talk about some of these folks. Yeah, I originally had a chapter called the Babe Ruth, and it, I wound up my my man, the book's 240 pages, and it's, I think there's about 130 stories, 130 illustrations. I, I actually went over by about 120 or 130 pages, so I had to scale it back. And <laughs> one of the chapters I had to cut, unfortunately, was the Babe Ruth. So I kind of sprinkled sprinkled those some of those stories that I kept, I sprinkled them throughout the rest of the book. But yeah, I, I went and I tried to find all the different Babe Ruths, like people that got called the Babe Ruth of. Uh, there's a guy in Mexico by name Hector Espino, who was known as the Babe Ruth of Mexico. And he played in the uh, early 19, from the early 1960s up until, uh, I believe, the 1980s. He, he had a really long career. Well, this guy was just, I think he has the record for the most home runs ever hit in organized baseball. Now, he's playing in low you know, low-level Mexican team, so it's not, right. it's not like he's playing in the majors. But he had a and really also high altitude, you know, guy, Mexico City, at high altitude, too. Yeah, so up in the yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, so he he was actually signed by the St. Louis Cardinals in 1964. He played half a season. He finished up the season with a team in Jacksonville, my early team, and he did extremely well. And, you know, he's going to get promoted to the Cardinals the next year, or at least he had a really good chance at it. But he just decided never to return to the United States again. And it drove the major league uh, the major league teams nuts because here's this guy hitting all these home runs down south, just, just south of the border. You know, you can almost see him down there, and he won't. they can't get him to come north. I mean, the Yankees tried to get him. The California Angels came really close to signing him. The New York Mets were after him. I mean, all these teams were just it, it was driving them nuts because here you have this guy that's a guaranteed major league star, and he just won't come north of the border because he didn't have to. In, in Mexico, he was Hector Espino. He was a superstar down there. He didn't have right. to come to the United States for fame. And I thought that was a pretty interesting story. You know, um, and then, yeah, uh, sometimes people, yeah, people also, there's some folks who'd rather be the big fish in a little pond. And you don't know yeah, if he was kind of. Go ahead, go ahead. That's exactly what, what, what Hector's deal was. You know, over the years, uh, a lot of people tried to write stories and say it had something to do with racism against Mexicans when he played in the States. And his wife actually came out and said, no, when, when, he, when he played in Jacksonville, when he played in the Southern Leagues in 64, he, uh, his wife said it was actually the opposite. She said people in, in Jacksonville and all the towns that they visited went out of their way to make them feel comfortable because they didn't speak English. You know, so they went out of their way to, to accommodate them. So he just, he just liked playing at home. <laughs> Simple as that. Yeah. Now talk about the uh, the Jewish uh, Babe Ruth. Yeah, that that was a neat guy. That, that was a guy by the name of Moe Solomon. Now back back before Babe Ruth joined the New York Yankees, the greatest team in the United States or in all of baseball was the New York Giants. That was that was the New York Yankees before the New York Yankees were them. And um, John McGraw, the manager of the Yankees, I mean the manager of the Giants, he. Uh, he, when uh, Babe Ruth joined the Yankees, John McGraw couldn't stand him because all of a sudden, 
everybody switched from being Giants fans to being Yankees fans. So he's right. John McGraw's watching all the attendants go, you know, go across the river up into the to the Bronx, and uh, so he's he's looking around desperately to find his own Babe Ruth. Now at the same time, there's a huge flood of immigrants from Eastern Europe who are, who are Jews, and they're huge baseball fans. So not only does John McGraw want to find a Babe Ruth, he wants to try to find a Babe Ruth who's Jewish. So he sends his scouts all over the United States looking for a Jewish, a Jewish ball player. And in a, a, a small league in Hutchinson, Kansas, a little, little minor league, there's a team called the Hutchinson Wheat Shockers. And there's this guy, Mo Solomon, and he is just hitting home run after home run. I think he winds up with 49 that year, which back then was, I mean, that was just unheard of. You know, that's something only Babe Ruth would do. So John McGraw spends all this money and signs, signs this guy to a contract and brings him up to the, uh, to the New York Giants at the end of the uh, 1923 season. Now, Mo Solomon, besides being a baseball player, he's also a, a, a very successful football player. This is before the NFL, so most football teams right. are semi-pro or, or things like that. So that's what he did in the offseason was when baseball was finished, he went right into the football season and did that. So... Uh, he joins the New York Giants at the tail end of the 23 season, and uh, all these Jewish fans flock to, to the polo grounds to see him play. And he finally gets into two games, and he does extremely well. And um, the Giants had won the pennant. They had clinched the pennant that year. They're going to play the Yankees in the World Series. And John McGraw wanted Mo Solomon to stay with the club, even though he wasn't going to get paid for it. He just wanted him to sit on the bench because he wasn't. He joined the team too late to be eligible to play in the World Series. Right. But he wanted him to be on the on the you know on the bench to not only bring fans in but to give him a little bit of a lesson on big league baseball. Well, Solomon came from a very poor family and he was uh, he supported his mom and dad and his brothers and sisters, and he needed to make money. So he needed to uh, go and and play semi pro football as soon as the season was over because he couldn't afford to take a couple of weeks off and. And you know, and miss some good money to play football. So John McGraw gets extremely offended by this, and sends and sells his contract to I think Toledo or something in the minor leagues, and um, says, you know, we'll bring him back next year or something. So it's kind of like a little punishment. You know, uh, we're going to send you down to the minors. Right. So Mo Solomon goes off and he has a very successful winter playing football, except he hurt. He breaks his I think he breaks his arm, arm or his leg, and uh, he recovers from it, but he never hit another home run in the rest of his minor league career, never made it back to the major leagues. But he went on to be a successful um, football player for many years. He was kind of like a, like a football mercenary. Town, towns would, uh, would hire, you know, rent him for the weekend to, to play in a big game. And it'd be in, uh, in all the newspapers that Mo Solomon was coming to town to play football. And, uh, yeah, so he, he went on to have a, a very successful business career after that. But he's known as the Rabbi of SWAT. That was his nickname. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I mean, there's so many of those stories like that in the book. And listeners, you can call in again. We have a few minutes with uh, Gary here. The number is four two four six seven five eight three one five. Now, what? You know, there's so many stories in there that really, you know, I mentioned some of them a few minutes ago that really I didn't know about about well-known players. But what story? Well, what one of the stories that you didn't know anything about, you're just redoing the research on this guy or, and just saying, my goodness, I didn't know that. Anyone that just struck you? No. Let me see. That, that's a tough question. Um, 
Oh boy. <laughs> you know there, there was uh, there was this one guy uh, by the name of Billy O'Hara. He was a he was Canadian. He was born in Toronto, and he played in the major leagues around 1910. You know, for about for about he had about a five or six year major league career. He was he wasn't great, but um, you know he's good enough to be in the majors. And he was an outfielder, and he was known for having an extremely powerful right arm. I mean, very accurate. His, his throws, you couldn't run on this guy. If he got on base and tried to tried to go a little too further and take a take an extra base. Billy O'Hara, he'll get you out. He'll get that ball right to the right to the glove of the guy that's going to tag you out. So um, towards the end of his career, he's playing back home in Toronto, which was where he was born, and he's playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, this is in 1915-1916. The war had just broken out in Europe, and Canada, the United right. States wasn't in it, but Canada was. So he's playing in the outfield in, in Toronto, and right over the outfield wall is a training training ground for the Royal Canadian Air Force or Royal Canadian Flying Corps. So every day he's in the outfield, he's watching these young pilots take off in these biplanes, you know, and he's looking at this and he's like, I want to, I want to get into that. So as soon as the season's over, he enlists in the, in the uh, Royal Flying Corps, trains, becomes a pilot, gets shipped overseas and uh, goes to France. And he winds up crashing a plane. And I don't know if he was, I couldn't really tell what he was doing with it. But it sounded like he might have been like stunting with it or something. So he winds up getting cashiered out of the flying corps, and they want to put him into um, to become a balloon observer. <laughs> and he's like, he says, I don't want to have any part of that. Put me in the infantry. So he gets he gets he gets put into um, into a Canadian infantry regiment, and goes to the trenches and he fights in a couple of battles. And he's a, he's an officer, and his specialty was leading trench raids at night. Now this is where I thought it was really interesting because he gets he winds up getting uh, getting a medal from the British because of his rifle arm he was able to throw grenades like baseballs with pinpoint accuracy <laughs> to kill Germans and he, he actually gets a medal for this <laughs> and I just thought that was I thought that was just just a great way to apply baseball you know to to something something else further on in your career and uh, yeah so he. And, so he, he came back from the war and, and went on a couple of lecture tours and stayed in baseball for, for many years after that. I mean, this, this book has so many stories like that. It's just fascinating. And actually, you read the book, and it's like it's a, it's like um, they're fairy tales, but they really are true stories. Yeah. Now, before you go out, and speaking of fairy tales and story, um stories that may be mythical, talk a little bit about them, um, because we always bring them up on the show, but talk about your story in there about Satchel Page. Yeah, that's you know with Satchel Page, you can write seventeen books on that guy, and you, you know you never run out of stories. I mean, he just had he played all over the world. He played against everybody. You know, he played with everybody, and um, you know, so I, I knew I wanted to put him in my book, and I, I had to try to figure out what what story and what part of his life to to, to go for. So I, I chose um, uh, in nineteen thirty seven. The Dominican Republic was was run by a guy named Trujillo. It was a dictatorship, and oh, Dominican yeah. Republic had a had a four team league back then. It was just a amateur league, and one of the opposition leaders on the island started backing one of the teams, and that team started to climb in the standings and was in first place. Well, Trujillo, the guy that's that you know it's supposed to be in charge down there, he's he's upset by this because it's making him look bad. So he sends one of his um, one of his trusted um, uh, one of his trusted associates 
to go to the United States and put together a team of baseball mercenaries and bring them down to the Dominican Republic. Now, in Satchel Page's autobiography and stories that people tell, they say that he was abducted off the streets of New Orleans at gunpoint and, and ordered to oh, be yeah. together by a bunch of gangsters. But th- that wasn't true. They had, the, the Dominican Republic guys just showed up in his hotel room with a suitcase full of money, and that was all, that's all it took for him. But what he did was he put together the best team that you could have possibly organized in 1937 out of guys that didn't play in the major leagues. So he had this just unbelievable international all-star team, and he brings it to um, the Dominican Republic, and they're called the, the uh, Trujillo City Dragons. And they wind up um, uh, competing with the, the team that was run by the oppo- uh, opposition. Now, at the same time, the team that was, that was run by the opposition, they start recruiting all the guys that Satchel Page wasn't able to pick up. So they actually had a pretty good all-star team, too. There's a couple of guys that wound up in the Hall of Fame on that team as well. But, you know, Satchel Page had, of course, himself, and he had Josh Gibson and Sam Bankhead and, and Bill Perkins and, you know, all these guys that were superstars. Yeah, that's amazing. And then a bunch, right. yeah, and then a bunch of Cuban guys that, that were, you know, that are top-notch ballplayers as well. And so they're going, um, you know, as the season starts going on, they're, they're neck and neck, these two teams. And then finally it comes down to the last week of the season, and there's this, you know, big showdown and um, – Satchel Page, the, the, the story that's often told is that, you know, he pitches the game of his life and Trujillo's soldiers come out onto the field with machine guns to make sure that they win, you know, and it, it, that didn't necessarily happen. <laughs> it's, you know, what had happened was uh, um, another pitcher pitched most of the game and they brought Satchel Page on at the, I think in the eighth inning. And he almost blew the game. He, he gave up a bunch of runs, put a bunch of guys on base. So he, he almost lost the game, but he wound up bearing down and you know, did what he did best and, and, uh, and won the game, which won the pennant. And, uh, you know, and then as soon as they were done down there, they just jumped on a, the Americans just jumped on a plane and got the heck out of there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I just want to say, Gary, again, this is, your book is really great. And all the work that you do is just really is just wonderful. And, you know, one thing I have to say about your cards in the in the pictures you got in the book that I love the fact that you do the back, the old style back rails. Thanks. And I I think yeah. it's the nineteen are you doing the nineteen fifty four or fifty three top set? Because there's something about your backgrounds. Talk a little bit about that. Well I, I'm I'm a graphic designer, you know, by trade and uh I just I always love the old advertisements and that's the one thing that I really right. loved about old baseball photographs is the old advertising, you know, so I'm, I've always been inspired by that. And so when I, um, you know, when I started doing my drawings, it, it, you know, not only not only did they make really nice backgrounds, but they're very colorful, and I, I enjoy doing it. It's just, it's fun for me to just, you know, put these old ads in there and just, or make up ads that look like they're old. So oh, yeah, it's they're, just they're very they're colorful. Really and, and, yeah, they just add something nice to the illustrations, you know, it's, it, it kind of just, I don't know, it just adds that certain something that makes it Well, I agree, you know, kind of romantic. You, you've really have done a great job. And are you still, I, am I right or not, are you still also, if anyone wants to get a card of their own? The yeah, I, I do that. Are I, you still I, doing yeah, that? Yeah, I, I do, um, you know, like, I have people who's, you know, whose uncle, you know, Uncle Al played for the St. Louis Browns or, you know, in the 1920s or something, he never had a baseball card. Or, um, 
you know, some people use my cards as uh, as business cards. I've had a bunch of people order ones that, you know, I depict them on their favorite team and, you know, as a ball player. And then the back has their contact information for whatever their business is. I've had a lot of people that, that have I to should do that. Do this. So. <laughs> if, if, if anyone wants to do fun, this, you know? yeah, what is what is the website now? If anyone wants to reach you, yeah, if you just go to just go to the blog, which is where the book came from, it's uh, infinitecardset.blogspot.com. All right, that yeah, sounds good. And you know, I could just talk to you all the rest of the evening because the, the book is fascinating. It, the work that you do is so great. And I just is there going to be a sequel to the book? Because you mentioned you had you know. You left out 130 some pages. So, will there be another uh, league part two? Yeah, if it if it sells well and I get a if, if they ask me to do another one, I'll, I'm right. I'm halfway there. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, that sounds good, Gary. So, Gary, I just want to thank you for being on. If anyone wants to uh, get the book, they can go to your site anywhere. They can go to Amazon anywhere else. Uh, it's in all the Barnes and Noble stores and most independent bookstores as well. All right. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for being on. I look to meet you one day and have you back on when you do the second book. Thanks so much, Gary. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. All right. You take care. And again, that was Gary Sir Adkowski, the author of the book, The League of Outsider Baseball, and the Illustrated History of Baseball's Forgotten Heroes on Touchstone Press, which is through Simon and Schuster Publications. And see, this is a time when I wish I had, you know, this was on television because you have to really see these illustrations. I mean, what he's the drawings are really something. They just they get you, they hit you immediately. It's like wow, this is something. And all the stories that are in there because it's not just it's guys like Willie Mays, but then there's these guys like you know we didn't get into uh, Eddie Goodell, you know folks like that that are in the book. And it's just it's just a fascinating book. So I hope you know you should get out there and get it. It's for anyone. You just want to read some history. You just want to read some stories that seem so far-fetched that they can't be true, but they really are. I would check the book out. Again, it's called The League of Outsider Baseball and Illustrated History of Baseball's Forgotten Heroes. And the author who I just talked to was Gary Sir Adkowski. So check that out. And we're going to get to more music here on the Root & Root Show as we prepare, prepare for our next guest. And it's going to be interesting because in the next hour, It'll be the first time, and I hope this works out. If not, I'll just have to play music the rest of the night. I'm going to do a, a Skype call, so this this ought to be fun. But in the meantime, I'm going to play another. Um, I'm going to do another Fats Waller song. Let's do um, Spider in the Fly. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you the great, gorgeous, gigantic overture known as the Web Song. You've never heard it by Tchaikovsky. you never heard it by Rimsky-Korsakov, because they didn't know any better. But now, I bring you one of yours truly, Little Fat Swallow's Spider and the Fly. I'm coming out of the web. Be careful now. I'll vamp you in. Won't you come into my parlor? Send the spider to the fly. I've the cutest little living room that you did ever spy for oh, fly. Bye bye, bye bye, for oh, fly. 
Because she walked into his parlor, unsuspecting little fly. Come in, my fine young maiden. Let me rest your dainty hat. We'll have tea out on the terrace and a friendly little chat. Oh, fly. Bye bye. Bye bye. Oh, fly. Because she walked into his parlor unsuspecting.
play right now, I think we will do, I think we'll do a little Winona Harris, because I haven't played him in a while. Let's do Quiet Whiskey on the Root and Root Show. Whiskey, whiskey on the shelf. You were so quiet there by yourself. Things were fine till they took you down, and opened you up, and passed you around. John was the first one to pull you down. He took one drink and he started to clown. Left you the Hazel, Jane, and Jack. Penelope got you and passed you right back. The doorbell rang and what did you see? In walked Henry, Fred, and Marie. They hit you high, they hit you low. They hit you fast and they hit you slow. Whiskey on the shelf. You were so quiet there by yourself. Things were fine till they took you down. Opened you up and passed you around. Another. They reached on the shelf and grabbed your brother. It's a shame the way they did you in. Then reached up and got your brother again. Grandfather wine began to tremble with fright, wondering if the party was gonna last all night. Grandfather wine knew without a doubt he was next in line if the juice ran out. Whiskey on the shelf. You were so quiet there by yourself. Things were fine till they took you down, opened you up, and passed you around.
Yeah, I'm going to get sloppy drunk if I can't get the Skype going. But <laughs> I love that song. That's the great B.B. King. I played that last week. I love playing that. But that's B.B. King, Sloppy Drunk. And before that, we did Winoni Harris and Quiet Whiskey on the Root and Brew Show as I wait for my next guest who's out of the country. And I'm hoping they will call in and remember the time. So in meanwhile, as we wait, because we always got music on this show, so nothing else, we're going to keep on playing the music. I'm going to do right now, um, I think we'll play um, the pianist uh, Marcus Miller, and I'm going to play Mr. Clean as we wait for our guests right here. And so let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Thank you. 
You know I'm a crawling black snake A lot of these women like to cross pool lighting trees I'm a crawling black snake Lots of women let it cross through lightning trees Well, they know that I don't make no jokes Any trail they cross, they know they don't feel You know that crawling black snake crawl a long way Just to see a woman All I hate, he was deep and dumb When he walk up, he give his sign by Brattering his tongue But that was a warning, stay back Cause you may get bit He may not be too pardoned, but you may not be fit. Crawling black snake. One snake got dodging that the one that called the king. One snake a dog And that is the one that they call the king They see just got plenty power, no poison He can kill any snake on earth, don't care how mean I see if you kill a rattlesnake, I better dodge him too. And so that's the reason I'm going to tell you like it go. Well, that was Lightning Hopkins, and I'm a crawling black snake, and I cut that off because I believe I have my guest on the line now. And before that, we did the basses, not the pianist, the basses, Marcus Miller and Mr. Clean. And I'm going to see here, are you there? Is this uh, Paul Marco? I'm here. All right, we got it together here. Well, I'm honored to have on the program uh, Dr. Paul Marco, who's on the line right now. Where are you calling from, by the way? We're currently in Ecuador. Oh, my goodness. it's the deep south. Yeah, the deep, yeah, deep, deep south. Yeah, I the would deep, say. Deep but Paul is the host of of the show, the world beyond belief, and he's done so much. And I, you know, I can really go on talking about him. But I just discovered your show a couple of weeks ago. A friend of mine sent me your show, and you were talking about in particular what was going on in Baltimore. 
And before I even bring that up, Rob, just tell my listeners, and you can call in at 424-675-8315, a little bit about your show. Well, we started the World Beyond Belief. Actually, we started it as uh, Transformation Chronicles. And the idea of the show was... um, My wife and I both think that the world, humanity is going through a great awakening where we're all becoming uh, more sensitive to what's going on. And for some of us, it it makes us more and more caring. But I know that's happening on the planet. So we thought it would be interesting to chronicle that, you know, just see, you know, what we're learning about, what we're going through, and, and what's happening. So... So we got a chance to go on Blog Talk, and um, we decided to do the World Beyond Belief because most of the things that we talk about are way beyond belief, including this Baltimore thing uh, that you were. And it really fascinated me. Fasc- yeah, fascinated me what you were saying about Baltimore. And so I just want you to just talk about that. You know what you think was going on there in particular. And also talk about the race issue, because I hadn't heard it put that way, the way you were doing it. And, I, and, I to, and it, it, it was fascinating, so I just want you to talk about that. Okay, you, you got it. I think I said that uh, race is uh, just crap. And if that's not politically correct, incorrect enough for you, um, I really think it is. I can't think of an instance when... The delineation of race has benefited mankind. I mean, there's a lot of people that have profited by it. There's a lot of there's industries built around it today, but I don't think it's ever helped us. What would you call it's, an industry? Because I have a name for the industry. What do you call it? Well, I think it's well. I don't know what I call it either, but I know that there are people, um, many people on the staff of every corporation that look into the fact, diversity, that's what it's called. So the diversity industry is there. And then of you wouldn't course now, say that the um, issue of white privilege or white supremacy is also an industry? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Both sides. It's a big deal. Oh, yes. Yeah, There's see, there's two sides of this issue. And there's two sides of this issue because we put up with the delineation of race. Um, and then I think I told on that program the story, my story of Charles County. Which I found well, fascinating because I'm, I'm in the Virginia area and I grew up in the D.C. in D.C. and I know folks who are related to the people you were talking about. So describe, talk about that because I had never heard anyone say that on the air. Well, see, probably no one has. And if anybody hears me talking about uh, my Charles County story and you lived through it the way I did. I'd love to have you get in touch with me. Pineconeutopia.com. Anyway, I'll tell you the story. You see, this Baltimore thing really hits home for me because I, I lived in uh, in Maryland. I went to, did some graduate work in uh, Baltimore, and I worked at this place called Charles County. Now, when I took the job, uh, I was told that the the racial mix was Forty-five black, forty-five white, and ten other. And uh, but when I got there, that isn't what I found it out to be. You see, 
Charles County is like a little peninsula that sticks out into the Chesapeake Bay. And it used to have a nice river running through it called the Tobacco River. Well, around the 1630s, some English people came over, notably the uh, Swans, the Proctors, the Thomases, and I think the Johnsons, but I can't really remember the, the fourth name. And they came over to uh, grow tobacco, and right. they settled right in right in Charles County. Well, I took the job in 1970, so this is about 350 years after these colonists settled. And they they must have brought their slaves with them, and I, it look, looks like the slaves were primarily black, and they intermarried. And they intermarried with the indigenous population, too. So you have 350 years, 15 generations of intermixing. And it was interesting. The uh, Because of the interbreeding, there was a high incidence of albinoism. But this group had bred some of the most beautiful people I've ever seen. I mean, it was like, uh, it was like amazing. The combinations. Well, these people, um, up until the Second World War, didn't have a, a race delineation. Uh, during the 20th century, they were living down there, and when the Roosevelt administration came in and they started giving um, special programs to different types of people, they would right. hand this money. Uh, well, they... Uh, they said, well, you're doing this for this sort of people and this for this sort of people. What are you doing for we sorts? So this group had gotten to be known as the we sorts. Now, the reason that they had race to begin with was because during World War II, this was in the 1940s, there were two uh, armies for the United States. There was the Black Army and the White Army. And they both had uh, recruiting stations in Charles County. So for one month, if the, if the White Army was short uh, their recruitment quota, they would take this guy in. And next month, if the Black Army was short their recruitment quota, they would take his brother in. So that's the only delineation of race that they had when I got there was given to him by the army because you have to you have to have a race. So so every year or every year you have to take a racial count. It's a federal program of for of some sort. And where I right. thought before the racial count was nothing you could you look at you knew. But in this school they had to raise their hand because the little uh red haired, freckle faced, blue eyed kid in the second row could be black. And the tall, you know, and the opposite was true, too. So it really made it um, a a farce. And before I went down there, in my first or second year teaching, I learned what I call the trick. And uh, so the trick made me adapt to this population differently than maybe other people would. Now, let me tell you the trick. Yeah, what is the trick? The trick if you work with people, if you're in sales, if you're in coaching, counseling, you're doing anything, the first thing you need to do is learn to love them. Now, 
That sounds really new agey and crazy, but it works. Honestly, it's worked all my life. The way I found it was I was teaching school, and all of a sudden one year I got this perfect class. It was like third period. And when third period came in, my heart raced. I just loved to be with these kids, and it was just loving. And I thought, well, you know, what's the difference between my fourth period class that I love and my third period class that I struggle with? And uh, I thought, what what would happen if I would learn to love the people in the third period class? So I was an art teacher, so I had a little bit of a, an extra help. And I'm not sure you can even do it. I don't know what goes on in public schools today. I don't think it's good. But I could sit down while they were working on their projects and talk to them and get to know them. And you can always find things you have in common and, you know, uh, common ground, they call it. And realize, you know, they have mothers, they have sisters. I mean, they have the same, they're the same. You just, as soon as you bond with them, learn to love them. And I've used that. I've taught all over the world in huge major corporations for governments, for the Department of Defense. I was an executive coach for the last 10 years in major corporations. And when I would teach a new coach coming in, the first thing I would do was teach him the trick. Find out how to love him. Find a way to love him. So that's so I knew the trick, and I was practicing it before I got down to Charles County. So so these kids became my my kids. Matter of fact, I every time there was a graduating class, I would buy everyone in the graduating class a carnation. Because it was sad for me, you know, to to let them go. So when right. I saw the, when I saw the kids standing in Baltimore holding a sign saying Black Lives Matter, I mean that just tears me apart. Because and that's makes, what I want you to talk about too, because you mentioned a guy who kind of created all this. Well, I there wasn't. Is, I knew it. I didn't know that he was the one that kind of created the whole hashtag. And talk about that. Okay. There is, um, I don't know whether your listeners know this, but there's a group of people, they're mostly uh, bankers and above bankers, that have been orchestrating most of the history in the 20th century. Now, what they're doing right now is they're trying to orchestrate a... uh, a complete collapse of the government uh, so that they can come in and rescue us. And I can get into that a, a little bit more. But the, but the, oh, I definitely the want strat- you to do that, yeah. The strategy now is to uh, create chaos. They use, um, well, they use divide and conquer. That's one thing. They've kept us divided. They And they've used this bullshit of race to keep us divided for all these years. And they've profited by it. They've profited by our division. There's there's one race, and that's the human race. We can interbreed with one another. There's no definitive way of delineating race. I mean, it's such, um, such a total idea that they've used to separate us. It's, it's really a shame. But anyway, what what they're doing right now is they're orchestrating in in Baltimore and in Ferguson um, these big uprisings. Now, 
they've spent a lot of time creating a miserable, miserable environment uh, for black people, especially in Baltimore. I know Baltimore pretty well. Um, they've uh, not only uh, been stirring up uh, the racial thing, and, and also, you know what, that, that, that has the counter effect on the white population because they become, they become frightened and they're the ones that will demand a solution. So they've got this whole thing, this whole thing boiling around a fictitious idea that doesn't exist. And what they want to do is, uh, well, they use divide and conquer, but they also use problem, reaction, solution. Now, that's a, that's a Hegelian dialect. I mean, it's from ancient Greece. It's, it's, a, it's a technique. What you do is you create a problem, and then you wait for the reaction, and then you bring in the solution that you had planned to bring in all along. That's, that's how it worked for 911. They had, a, they, had a, uh, they had an attack, and a lot, there's a lot, a lot of indication that that attack was orchestrated for, by, and a lot of people benefited by that attack that could have made it happen. In other words, people in the government uh, either allowed it to happen or perpetrated it so that the American people, all of us would react, oh, my God, you got to do something about these Muslim terrorists. Meanwhile, they had been schooling us to distrust and dislike Muslims during the 20th century. You can go back to movies in the 40s and the 50s, and if they pick a, an Arabic person... They, it's not a favorable representation. So we have the problem, the attack, the reaction, oh, my God, help us. The solution is the Patriot Act. We'll take yeah, away your right. freedom. And wouldn't, wouldn't you say that uh, hatred for Arabs goes even back to the Solon era? Because there's a book uh, written by Jack Sheehan back in the 80s about the movie Arab, and he talks about that dating back to the time of uh, with, uh, Rudolph Valentino. Right, and it's this whole hatred of Muslims, Arabs in particular. But uh, you know, I interrupted you there. But continue about the Patriot Act and all, because this is you know this is a stuff that a lot of what you say, a lot of people will not hear this in the news. And it's you know it's kind of going through. I know right now some of my listeners, and you can call in at four two four six seven five eight three one five. I'm talking to Paul Marco of the World Beyond Belief Show. And, but it's something that I believe, and that's why I wanted you on here to hear, to hear a different perspective. So conti continue with what you were saying. Okay. Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate you, you doing this because I think the more people that can see this little deeper view, uh, we'll be able to get out of this thing and join hands. And I have a, I have a plan at the end I, I'd like to go over, just mention. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking, and uh, something we can do, but... Let me tell you about uh, the problem or solution that's happening in Baltimore. There's a man named George Soros. Now, George Soros, uh, actually, his name is uh, Jorge Schwartz. He named, he's changed his name to George Soros. A lot of the um, people that call themselves elite, uh, the controllers, do this name change stuff. He was a uh, Hungarian Jew that was... Uh, was um, about 14 years old when uh, the Nazis came into Hungary. And uh, he ended up uh, working for the Nazis uh, 
And what he'd do is he would uh, help them get the gold and silver and the watches and things off of the Jews that had died in the, uh, in the, in the uh, well, however they died, whether it was a gassing or, or whatever. So that's how he started off. And I think, you know, to give him um, a little bit of leeway, I think when you're hit with that much trauma at that early an age, who knows how you'll crack? You know, who knows, you know, they trauma-based hey, yeah. mind, mind control is what it's all about. Well, anyway, he grows up, become, he becomes a uh, a real uh, multimillionaire. And he does it through really shady ways. I mean, he's uh, making millions of dollars by devaluating the pound. And now what he's taken on, he's, 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 uh, he gets, he's a psychopath, so he has these delusions of grandeur, and uh, he has become a philanthropist. Now, this philanthropist, he aids organizations that um, help his cause, and his cause is what they call the New World Order. This is where they, they want to consolidate all the countries and all the governments under one rule, so they're... Uh, um, you know, under the United Nations is what it's going to be. So to get Which back to already, But this is a different type of United Nations you're talking about. Now, this includes the bankers, but you mentioned, which I call I call the unseen hand, but talk about also, with Soros and all, the other forces that are involved in this. Oh, well, everything you see... Everything that you feel in that environment is being uh, brought up by the, the media. The media spends a lot of time on this. Here's, I, I got a quote here. This is um, from a book written by G. Edward Griffin uh, in 1971. He says, If those who seek world domination can stimulate leftist mobs to violent confrontation with local law enforcement and also provide exhaustive news coverage, provide exhaustive news coverage so that the entire nation can see and tremble, then the peaceful and freedom-loving people can be programmed to accept the vast expansion of government powers and even a national police force offered supposedly to end the violence. See, that's the solution. They want to, they want to bring in a uh, a national police force. So what's happening in Baltimore? Back to what's happening in Baltimore. So we're stirring the pot, and we've got <clears throat> uh, black activist groups now uh, springing up all over. Um, there's a new one that just, uh, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, that was a good one. And then Hands Up International is another one. These are all sponsored by uh, George Soros or supported by him. And uh, the irony of of Black Lives Matter is that George Soros, uh, he doesn't even care about human lives. Um, That is a, that is a, he was, he was most recently caught spending $33 million to pay activists, rioters in uh, Ferguson and Baltimore. So, so, so 
And I'm sure, uh, Paul, there's some people out there saying, well, that's a good thing. You know, you have a philanthropist who's giving us money to help, you know, a cause. Well, yeah, it is a good thing. And you get your $2,700, and when you spend it, that's great. But here's what here's what the end game is. Here's what the end game is. Um, they want to federalize the police. They want to make all the police report to, uh, first of all, the federal government, and then they'll eventually report to the only government, which is the UN. They want to take away everyone's guns, including the police, so that the only people that can protect you uh, is the federal government, and there's no way that you can protect yourself from the federal government. So they're going to make it. It makes the population so that you're totally subject to the whims of the federal government. Like, like you, you know that they're trying to get universal mandatory vaccines all over the country. And, you know, I don't know whether vaccines are always good or always bad. Actually, I do know, but I'm going to say I don't know whether they're always good or always bad. But certainly your choice as to what you put into your body uh, should be yours, especially if they're injecting it. So uh, this would make this would put in play a federal government where nobody nobody's going to win the, the the black factions not going to win they're not going to be any richer or get a, get the two thousand seven hundred dollar check but that's it the 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 rest of the community you're not going to be any safer I mean the, the biggest threat to your safety is the federal government now so you're certainly not going to be uh, any safer under this? I know out out of out west there's a there's a thing now. And I just I just came across it. The Raza. Do you know about the Raza? I've heard of yeah. Explain that for folks who may not well, know. The, the Raza is uh, it's it's a group now looking out for um, the race of kind of um, oh, I don't know what you call it. It's like a it's a it's a Latin American Mexican kind of race. Right. And they're saying that that's a race and that they want the Southwest back. And it's it's they're being orchestrated the same way the whites and the blacks. <laughs> they're just being orchestrated the same way to get up and stand up and say, we want this and we want that. Well, they're not going to get anything. You're, all of us are going to lose. The bankers are going to win. Let me, let me tell you about World War II. Now, every... Uh, Every 100 years or every 80 to 100 years, there's what they call a saculum. And in a saculum, it goes from a crisis to an awakening, from a crisis to an awakening. It's like seasons. It goes back and forth. And World War II was the last crisis in the 20th century. Then the 65 to the 85 era was the awakening. But the last crisis was World War II. We're in a crisis now. And... Uh, what they did in the last crisis is the English bankers, notably uh, orchestrated by the Rothschilds. I don't know whether you've ever heard of them. Oh yeah. They wanted a they wanted a war with Germany, and World War One didn't completely destroy the the threat to their hegemony. Uh, so they created a thing called communism, and they orchestrated the Bolshevik revolution, so that they were puppeting the Soviet Union in the person of Stalin. Uh, the Rothschilds, the Warburgs, the Fords, and other wealthy investors sponsored Hitler. 
How do you think he went from a country bankrupt in 1933 to one that could threaten the world security in 38? Well, it was because of the bankers, the same banker families that are financing Black Lives Matter, Hands Up International, the Open Society Institute. So they, they, they get these sides fighting with one another. Uh, the bankers loaned the money to all these countries so that they could buy the arms at interest. And they sat back and watched it play out. Well, um, the other day I was on a website and I was looking at World War II, the results of World War II, and I was looking at the death count for World War II. Let me give—I got it for all the countries that were involved. But let me give you some. Hey, you know, before you go, before you go on that far, I just want to give the number again: four two four okay. six seven five eight three one five four two four. Six seven five eight three one five, and I know, listeners, that what you're hearing from Paul Marco right now is like things. Unless you listen to a show that you've never heard before, and I know you're shaking your heads and like, I don't, you know, I can't believe this. But and, what, and by the way, Paul, what do you do with someone like that? What do you suggest? Because yeah. I know probably the majority of my folks are probably just like, you know, what, you know, I've never heard this, but it kind of makes some sense. <laughs> that's the, that's the big question, Greg. Um, I wrote a book to try to ease people into this information. It's like somebody telling you that left is right and right is left, and uh, you know these people that I've learned to trust in uh, the mainstream media have been lying and and on and on. It's really hard, and I I, I really don't know. I I have close friends that I love and relatives. And what that, was the name of your book, by the way? I was called, it's called Belief Magic by Paul okay. Marshall. I, I, I want to wake up uh, and get people started to see the world in a little bit grander fashion in my family. And uh, they just, when, when they're ready, they're ready. When they're not ready, they're not ready. But there's plenty of information now. We have the inter- Internet right now. I don't know how much longer we'll have it. There's uh, this Trans-Pacific Partnership going on. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of effort to shut down your your ability to get information like this. Um, so at least we have it now. And, and you can dig in. I mean, everything I've said, you can reference in the uh, on the Internet. You can just Google in uh, any phrase that I've used on this show and see what you come up with. And... Uh, you know, I think some people, and, and it's, an, it's an amazing process. The, the awakening process is totally amazing because it's an individual thing, but it's a collective thing. You'll come to realizations together sometimes. You know, you'll see, you'll hear this on the web and this on the web and this guy comment, and it's all the same thing that you were thinking of that week. So it's like a... It's a collective thing we're going through. It's an individual thing we're going through. And when people are ready... They'll come to it. Uh, there's there's nothing you can say. Uh, maybe they'll hear this and this will be a seed in their brain, and it might make them. Um, so in other words, when the uh, right. So in other words, when the student is ready, the teacher is there. Yeah, the teacher will appear. Yeah, right, there's plenty of teachers. That's a good call. But let, let me finish my World War II thing. Yeah. Because I do have some stuff here. 
China lost 2,000, uh, 2 million soldiers and 11,500,000 civilians. That's one country. Uh, we got Germany, of course, lost 3,350,000 soldiers, 3 million civilians. Japan lost 2 million soldiers and about a half a million civilians. Uh, the U.S., USSR, they really took a hit. Uh, now, remember, these are orchestrated by the banksters. Stalin was put in by the banksters. And Stalin starved 9 million of his own people during World War II. Uh, the total number of soldiers, casualties, for, for Russia was 13,708,000. They lost 65 million um, civilians. These are, they, say, they sound like numbers, uh, and they are numbers, but each of them is a person. And this doesn't include the numbers of uh, people who were orphaned uh, during that time. The uh, right. You know, the, the, the lost limbs, the uh, um, ruined lives, the post-traumatic stress. I mean, these are just the, the raw numbers. Now, this is the last time these bankers took charge of a crisis. Now we're in a new crisis. The bankers are in charge. They've ruined the Ukraine. Soros, the same person we've been talking about, brags about overthrowing the democratically elected government in the Ukraine. They've done it to Kosovo. Uh, we wiped out Libya. We we're, we're creating chaos all over the world, and we're getting the same type of carnage we had the last time the crisis occurred, uh, back in, in, the, in the 30s and 40s. So we're being marched into the same trap, into the same fiction that we were before. And I hate to see my people in Maryland, I mean, up there, for heaven's sakes, they're, they're Northeasterners. They're, they're sharp people being, being manipulated like this for the, for the most evil of purposes. Honestly, it's the most evil of purposes. So, you know, I, I'm going to play, play devil's advocate here. And actually, please. maybe we're talking about the devil in a sense, but um, why don't the bankers, if they have all this power, why do they have to go through these little kind of games? Why don't they just move in and just dominate, just take over? Why play this little game like you have some freedom? And I'm not talking about just this country, but any country. Why play, that's, you know? Go ahead. That, that's excellent. That's an excellent question. And I can only speculate. But the first thing I would think of was the fact that it's much easier um to keep people in a prison when they know they're not in a prison. Uh, it's much, much easier to control people that think they have, a, they have a right to vote, that think that they have a say in, their, in, in how this, these things come about. They don't. It's a, it's a ruse. It's a game. You've been tricked. You were tricked into World War II. We were tricked into the... This is, this is my generation, was uh, alive during the Awakening. During the Awakening, that was when, uh, you know, it was the uh, 65 uh, summer of love, kind of love generation thing. 
during right. a normal normal awakening in this in a speculum uh, secular cycle, people are born called the the prophet generation, and this prophet generation was the baby boomer generation, and they look to solve social problems. In other words, there's a there's a big impetus inside uh, the meme of humanity to move us toward um, equality and fairness and away from wars. So there was a big movement. That, that was that was what the controllers saw coming. They're gonna they're gonna try to um, end war. Now the controllers need war. They make a lot of money on it, and they control, and they keep the population well-mowed with, with wars. And also, uh, this generation wanted to um, end discrimination. I mean, we're the generation that stood up for the civil rights. Well, they need the, they need the division. They need racial division to, to, do, their, to do their dirty work. So we, we couldn't have that happen. So they corrupted the awakening, and they perverted it into the hippie movement of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And yeah, you, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up because you mentioned on your show, and, and we only have oh, 14 minutes to go. And I'm gonna ask you this, Paul, and I, I don't know if you're able to do this. I mean, because you have a lot of facts. Are you able to come back on tomorrow at the same time? Sure, we can do this tomorrow. Yeah, I'd be happy. I, you, I'd be happy to, Greg. I think it's important that we, you know, your show. I was loving your show. I listened to it from the beginning. The information about baseball was fascinating. Your taste in music is my taste in music. So I was well, really rock. I was rocking back here, and I was thinking, man, I hate <laughs> to talk. I hate to talk about this new world order stuff and how we're being railroaded and tricked. Uh, but I'm so glad that we get this chance to do this. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to uh, – I want my listeners to know that Paul will be back on tomorrow at the same time, and we're going to continue the dialogue. But we have now 12 minutes to go, so just just uh, finish up with, you know, with the rest of this for the next 12 minutes and then knowing that you'll be back to talk more tomorrow. Okay, I'd love to, Greg. Yeah, this is how uh, they orchestrated us. They got us into uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and away from the civil rights issues and the war. They did, Of course, they did two additional things. They ended the Vietnam War, which made everybody go to sleep all of a sudden. Nobody, nobody objected when they went into Granada or now they're going into every country they can find. Uh, we just gave up the cause. And then the civil rights movement ended up in the 1969 um, Civil Rights Act, uh, when everybody went back to sleep. Well, I guess it's done. It's it's a law. And, and the law turned out to be a double-edged sword because although it got a lot of minorities into, into nice positions, it also, uh, you know, caused um, resentment and, and problems like that. So it didn't really solve the issue. The way, the way you solve the issue of race is to forget about it. It's, just, it's an idea whose time has come and gone. There's 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 no uh, there's no reason to have it, and so and it just separates us. It allows them to. Um, but it it makes exciting news and coverage on television. It does, 
and they can, you know, they can, you know, it's like the sex card, the race card, the whatever. I mean, you can always throw that in to make, you know, when you don't have good logical arguments, well, you, what you do is you throw in something that'll that's like a wild card that gets everybody right. off. I want to give you a quote. Uh, speaking of George Soros, so we can talk more about him tomorrow. He said in a uh, in an article in an Australian magazine that quote destroying America will be the culmination of my life's work end quote. When he did he say to, that? Well, it was a couple of years ago. And uh, advocates violence against cops. I mean, he you have to um, now Soros has. Well, he has two point what is it? Twenty four point two billion dollars. That's for the B. So he, and he's in the type of position where you know he's a banker. I mean, he can he can actually create money out of nothing. He he can borrow money uh, at at five percent. So he has to put up five percent, and he can borrow the other ninety five. I mean, that gives you a lot of capital ability afloat. Um, so. Anyway, he's he's working his hand in in Baltimore, and uh, let me tell you a little bit about what I'm calling the uh, plan for a hundred lovers. And uh, plan for a hundred lovers, okay. <laughs> plan for a hundred lovers, and it's it's not the kind of lovers like uh, uh, you know they are sung about. It's lovers like you know my trick, learn to love them. Once you get into this. Uh, uh, this field where you're looking a little bit more deeply and who's really orchestrating and who's really playing things, you start looking for uh, solutions. How can we work ourselves out of this? How can we uh, do something that'll turn the tide so that they're not in control of us anymore? I hate to be controlled. So I was thinking that um, if you make a big organization, what, it happen- what happens is it's immediately corrupted. Uh, it usually gets infiltrated, and it gets big donations, and it becomes uh, part of the banker's tools. So you have to keep organizations and structures pretty small. But I was thinking if you had 100 people in a community, and I don't care whether the community's, you know, flesh and blood on the ground, uh, or it's, a, it's an Internet community. And it doesn't recognize uh, uh, religion, race, or any of that as a division. We're just going to learn to love one another. And we get together, and here we are. We're 100 lovers, and we're going to take care of ourselves. We're going to take care of our 100 people, and we're going to educate our children. We're going to protect ourselves. We're going to give ourselves uh, the opportunity that we all have that we all can get based on 100 people working at it. Uh, We're going to be our own defense so we don't have to call in police. Now, I know it really sounds fantasy-like, but I think that as we learn that government is not our friend, that government's there to control and manipulate us, and that when they see us as just slaves, then we're going to learn as the awakening takes place on the planet, we're going to learn that we want freedom. And one way to work ourselves into freedom is to love one another. And I suggest these little packs. What do you think about that, Greg? Well, I, you know, 
I agree with that. I'm going to play devil's advocate one more time here until tomorrow. Would you, and actually I shouldn't say I'm devil's advocate with this one, but would you say that they, aren't the bankers actually lovers because they love themselves to do all this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's it's all about uh, whether you live for yourself or you live for others. I think that humanity is a is a compassionate uh, race. We have we have open hearts and we love. The banksters don't. They're psychopaths. They don't care about anything but themselves. And that's the division. That you want you want to know what division? That's the division. The division between people that are directed and caring only for themselves and their their own wealth and their own power and the people who care for others. I believe that humanity is capable. I know they're capable. I've worked with people all my life uh, of loving one another and caring about one another. When you see pictures of Palestinian people being blown up, it's got to affect your heart. If it hasn't, you're watching too much TV and you're getting numbed. Uh, this is what we're all about. We're about compassion. We're about one another. We're about getting ourselves out of this pickle we're in. And uh, that's why, yeah, you see, they care. They care passionately. They care passionately about putting in this new system, and they work all the time on it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And Jim. again, and again, you know, listeners, this is uh, Paul Markle. I'm talking with the host of the World Beyond Belief show, and he's going to come back here tomorrow to talk even more about what he's talking about this evening because it's more than just Baltimore, more than Ferguson, more than race. This is a bigger picture, and I'm just happy to have you on here tonight, Paul. It was really, you know, I took a chance. It took me a while actually to to find you, actually how to contact you, but I'm glad I did, and I know that my listeners, especially those, especially my one listener in particular who sent me your information, you know, I know that they're very happy to have you on as other folks, and I know a lot of the things you're saying. Again, it's not what you hear at all, and I know it's like, there are some folks who are probably sitting there and like, oh goodness, I don't know. If I want to hear him again, I don't, I don't know what he's actually <laughs> talking about. I'm scared. I don't know what, you know. So tomorrow we'll talk about more about hope. You you have given hope now. We'll talk more about that. But also, I want you to get more tomorrow into folks like the committee of three hundred. Uh, you know the fall. You know, getting back to Baltimore. Ferguson, and I can say Palestine and other places, false flags, because I want you to talk about that. And just, just those things that people don't really hear. And we have, oh, we got, what, three minutes to go here, Paul. So you want to conclude right now in three minutes? Sure. I'm, I'm also happy that we had decided to have this. And if you have inter uh, listeners that are interested in this, I'm, I'm really happy to give as much information as I can you know, I don't know everything, and we're, I'm just awakening into this myself. We we all are. When you first right. hear this, it's like a, a, a new thing, and and it's uh, it, it it might be scary at first. It wasn't for me. To me, it was just like, oh my God, I need to know this. I've been tricked. Well, it's funny. I don't want yeah, to. because it's funny, Paul. You're um, I think it was like the first one I heard was number one thirty nine of your show. And I've listened to that one in, in 
I've listened to it about four times. Just wow. to get, take everything in. Because there's a lot of information. Well, well thank you. That's why I want you back on tomorrow. I'm here. I'm here for you. All we'll right. Call we'll call in at the same time. Same time, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I just want to thank you again, Paul, for being on this evening. And we'll be talking to you tomorrow. And you can finish up. And I, you know, just glad, just glad to have you on. I'm honored to have you on here. Well, I'm honored to be on here, Greg. And I think that uh, I hope that uh, we might have planted a few seeds out there. We can only hope. I think we. I think we have, and so I'll be talking to you tomorrow, Paul. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you, Greg. Bye-bye. All right. And again, that was Paul Marco. He's the host of the World Beyond Belief Show, and I know some of the things you're not used to hearing that he says. In fact, some of the things that we say on the show in general, you're probably not used to hearing, but we get to the root of issues on this show. You know, we had a show a couple of weeks ago with Jason Black, and that really blew people away because they're not used to hearing someone talk about race that way. There are some shows we have even about sports where folks are not used to hearing that. And I always get these folks coming at me later on asking me questions about the shows. and But it's always fascination. That's the main thing. And, and so I just hope that you've enjoyed this show this evening with my first guest, uh, Gary Cease-Adkowski. That's easy for me to say right now, but Gary Cease. Sarah Adkowski, he's the author of the book, The League of Outsider Baseball, and it's the illustrated history of baseball's forgotten heroes. And then we had, again, we had Paul Markle on, and he's the host of the World Beyond Belief show. And in many ways, he's talking about things that you don't hear on CNN or anywhere else, and you won't hear it on there, but it's something that, you know, to make you think. If you may not agree with him, and I can't say I agree with everything he has said on his shows, but it's fascinating, and I agree with the majority of it. So you may not agree, but at least it gets you thinking, and that's what we want to do on the show, on the Root and Root show. So I just want to thank all of you that listen in. If you got, if you have any questions or anything, as I always say, you can go to the blogtalkradio.com website, look for the Root and Root Show and leave your comments there. Go to my Facebook site, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. You can go to Twitter and it's hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam, and you can leave your comments there. Because a lot of folks, like, you know, having Paul on here this evening was due to a listener, very good friend of mine, suggested I tried to get him and showed, you know, sent me the one of his shows, and I really got fascinated by it. And I said, I'm going to try to get this guy on here. And thank, you know, it's a blessing to have him on. As well, it's a blessing to have all the folks we've had on here in the past and that we will have on in the future. So you can contact me those ways. But again, this is Greg Rasheed with the Root and Root Show, and I just want to say, go in love and go in peace. And again, I want to say to my friends and in Denver, just thank you for listening in, and you'll be hearing this show on Saturday, which would be Saturday. And I just want to thank Henry Archuleta with uh, KUHS, the founder of that station there, radio and television, and just thank him for do, you know having me on there. 
And just, you know, just look forward to doing these shows. So we'll be back again tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on the Root & Root Show. This is Greg Rasheed. Go in love and go in peace. Take care.